Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today we have Stefan Klessel from SpeedInvest. Uh, we're co-investors in several companies, but we'll get to that into a bit. One of the areas that we're gonna cover is the disruption in financial services. But before we get to that topic, we wanna to start where we always start, which is the beginning. The beginning of his career and everything that he's done uh, over the course of his life that has gotten to him where he is today. So maybe Stefan, we can start with, what did you study in college and what was the first job you, you you, you went after yeah hi Carlos um, pleasure to be here um, so I started uh, business administration economics in Vienna in Austria um, and uh, then went on to to Columbia University in New York uh, did a couple of sort of uh, jobs to make money at the side but my first real job was with AT Kearney in New York uh, advising basically banks and insurance companies on, on strategy and operations we're talking old world, we're talking 1995-96. Uh, so the word fintech didn't exist at the time. Well, I mean, you know, tech, tech and tech payments and transference of money in different networks and payment networks existed to some extent. What was like the key sort of, just the place where we are mm -hmm. today, like what were the key strategic initiatives that they were working on in those days? In those days, a lot, a lot of it was, was around cost reduction, frankly, I think. Um, so, for instance, we applied a lot of uh, uh, practices from, from uh, other industries to banking. So, we, in many cases, for instance, would help the CFO of large banks like World Bank of Canada or Citibank to uh, drastically reduce non-personnel spent by very much processes that we, you know, from sort of uh, the production industries, from automotive, for instance. But at the time, what came up in 98, 99, of course, were also the E-Trades uh, so I remember when we were uh, young analysts uh, that we got really, really excited uh, trading online, which today sounds like um, a very obvious thing. Yeah. It was the coolest thing in the world to use E-Trade or Ameritrade uh, and, and participate in the stock market craze of the late 90s. Yeah. So uh, that's probably the closest we would get to, to anything fintech at the time. And did you, did you work with those banks? in helping them think through their strategy for launching something similar to that or were they just not waking up to that? Uh, at the time, the, uh, I don't think many of them really took this very seriously. Um, um, so, frankly, it was almost like living in two different worlds that were disassociated as sort of analysts in suits we were advising big banks uh, to do stuff, but the digital agenda w wasn't there at all. And it sort of in our private life, we had our laptops opened. I mean, laptops did exist already. Yeah. And we were, you know, doing E-Trade for us privately. So yeah. it, was, it was very much uh, not as, uh, associated. But I think uh, come, uh, you know, PayPal 2001, 2002, I mean, you know, things started uh, to move. Yeah. Mm. And one of the things that we'll kind of revisit in our chat is this idea of the disruption that's still available in the financial industry. And, you know, it sounds to me like the, the banks and any large financial organization is just hesitant to make change, even if it's staring them in the face. So it sounds like from the very beginning of your career, you were already kind of a witness to that. And maybe we can touch upon how you've seen that sure. over the course of your career. So what, after, what did you do after you moved away from, I mean, the bubble crash? Were you still, were you, where were you when it crashed? Well, the story is a bit more interesting. I did also, like many other consultants at the time, leave on a sabbatical and joined a company called onmoney.com, which was sort of a spin-out of Ameritrade. Mm -hmm. 
and it was their attempt to do account aggregation. It's a concept that has come back in many ways in the second wave. So the interesting, a couple of interesting things around that. So a lot of the disruption concepts we see today again have already existed at the time and they were attempted. The tech was, wasn't ready. It was way too expensive to do this. It basically allowed you, know, you as a customer to aggregate in the US all your current accounts, savings accounts, your 401ks uh, and, and your, you know, your loans uh, into sort of a personal balance sheet. Okay? Mm -hmm. And the way we did that was screen scraping. So Yodli is probably the only company mm -hmm. of that time to survive. Mm -hmm. um, our money didn't. Uh, we uh, were able to finance a Super Bowl ad. That was pretty funky. That's a good use of cash. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, and you know it was uh, it was a fantastic experience, um, which which I'm sure has has had a big impact on, on myself and, and on my interest. Mm. And, and here I am in the venture world. Yeah. So what, what I mean we were talking about this earlier with another another interviewee about timing and like when is timing right and when is timing. Now, to some extent, with financial services, uh, there aren't, they are not services that inherently people um, don't, you know, they're, they're already using them in some capacity. It's not like a new thing that you need to educate people on. The idea of having a payments platform that is better than the previous one isn't, an, isn't something that you have to educate people on. If it's cheaper, it's faster, it's better, they're going to want to adopt it. But when it comes to getting the market right with anything like this, what really determines the timing for any financial services company to come and disrupt something else? Why was that not the time for, mm. for something like what, you know, Yodeli was obviously one of the ones that succeeded, but maybe some of the new ones that are kind of in place right now, what made it possible? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think if you look at the famous PayPal example, uh, I, I mean, you, you can see how important timing was. I mean, Peter Thiel himself writes that it was a question of two or three weeks uh, before the crash that he was able to close his 100 million round, which enabled him to survive those two, three years where there just wasn't any um, financing available. So, I mean, that tells you everything about timing. And of course, PayPal then went on to, to become a standard. Um, and I think there were a lot of other concepts which in a funky way are resurfacing now in the second wave that simply weren't that lucky. Uh, so, so the funding strategy is so much depending on timing and you can uh, be very, very unlucky on that. Uh, or, that's or for sure. Alternatively, I could interpret what you said as getting the timing right from a funding perspective means that you've raised enough funds so that you can then capture the opportunity when the, the market's ready for it. Mm -hmm. But then there's an element, a second element of market timing, which is not assuming you have all the money you need, it's when the customer segment is educated enough about the merits of the new idea. And we mm -hmm. can talk about this in terms sure. of like Curve and some of the other investments that we right. have together. It's like right. when the market's educated enough mm -hmm. to then be like, this solution is so much better than what existed before, which looks like it was in the Middle Ages. And so I'm curious as to, in, in, in the company that you were in, what elements about the macro market now you look back on it, mm -hmm. was just there was just no way that they were going to be ready for this. Yeah. Well, did, uh, this, we can have hours of discussions on this. Uh, let me give you an example. I think in many ways, um, at the time, um, there were a lot of startups where people like myself left high-paying jobs. And we're talking also 
I mean, the boss of On Money, Vince Passione, who I really like, very high-paid, very senior guy from Citibank, coming over to start this. I mean, we received higher salaries than at Citi or at AT Kearney. I mean, if you think, I, I think there's one learning. You know, once you start going down that route, something's wrong, right? <laughs> so I think my feeling is, um, I mean, all of us, we we. we very much sort of the, the bootstrapping concept is something that mm. that is for sure um, uh, you know Have founders got it right in the second wave yeah. Yeah, versus the first of course technology was much more expensive than it is today and of course the customers the consumers weren't ready in many ways in, in, in a large uh, number uh, to adopt quickly to some of these concepts I mean you know fast forwarding it, it is so Timing, of course, means you know that the, the generation, the famous millennials, we didn't call it that way at the mm -hmm. time. Um, we we know their needs very very well, and I think uh, fintech startups today are catering to that. Um, so so there is a, a large enough pool of users, educated users. They don't have to explain, and they don't have to mm -hmm. explain a lot about why a certain mobile-based banking service is useful or not. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's cost of tech. It's it's um, you know uh, a critical mass of educated users, and um, and of course it's getting the timing right on the fundraising strategy. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting points about the educated user base. Not only educated on the basis of how to consume and, and discover your your service, but also in the benefits of it. So we'll we'll revisit that in terms of some of the new innovations that you've seen in, in financial services. So what happened after On Money? What, what happened to you after that? Well, I was lucky because my partner uh, at AT Carney, she anticipated, uh, a lady, she anticipated this is not going to work out. But she was, you know, she was great saying, hey, go off, do it. You're going to learn a lot and you'll come back. And that's exactly what happened. So, so I came back in 2001 to 2005. I went back to Europe. I'm from Austria, as I said originally. Uh, started a family. I uh, have four kids. It's a good startup. Huh? Yes, uh, used used. Let's say those those years to start a family, and uh, you know did did continued consulting in in Europe in Eastern Europe, which was a, a, a new frontier. Mm. In ninety nine two thousand, you you had uh, a whole wave of bank M and A mm. in Eastern Europe. So I was involved in a lot of those acquisitions and uh, pursuant. Um, you know, defining the strategy um, of, of those new bank entities, and in many ways, it was it was very exciting because we were able to experiment a lot with product, with pricing, in markets where you can actually make money in financial services. Mm -hmm. So those were great times. We were active in in, in Poland, in you know Slovakia, Bulgaria, uh, Romania markets like this. So so that was that was good fun, and. Um, yeah, and and, those, and I, guess, I mean, if, yeah. if you remember the days, and you probably go back quite a bit, uh, is is um, is fintech innovation from the point of view of which markets you can target? Is it equal at this point? I mean, if you look at something like Facebook as a as a contrast, anyone with an internet connection can have a Facebook account and can get the benefits of Facebook. But when you start looking at mm -hmm. financial services innovation, you know, you've witnessed Eastern European and other markets right. kind of develop. Would you argue that you know the financial services as as um, as sort of a sector can only really capitalize a few markets and the rest are sort of in progress, which means that there's greenfields, but it's just going to be staggered uh, year after year or maybe decade after decade. 
Sure. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, uh, financial services is a regulated market. And so the regulation brings with it, with it fragmentation. Um, we are, where it becomes very interesting is obviously in, in large markets like Europe, where over many, many years, let's give some credit to the European Commission, has been forcing a standard market also in financial services. So the fact that we are able to passport an e-money license of Holvi, which is, is a fintech startup uh, catered to micro-enterprises coming out of Finland, in. and we're both investors in, uh, to, to be able, based on the rails of the European regulation, to passport that within 30 days into any other EU country, that's a great thing. That, that wasn't possible before. Guess what? It means that a startup out of Finland that is catering to, you know, one or two million people uh, for that particular segment suddenly has possibly to cater to 100 million people. That makes an unbelievable difference, obviously, for the founders and also for the, the venture backers. Mm -hmm. So that's great. Um, and again, I mean, looking at India, I mean, you know, we, we don't invest as a fund in India, but, uh, you know, I have a lot of folks doing cool stuff over there in fintech as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at what's happening there. Mm -hmm. You know, Modi, new president, you know, sort of... Mm -hmm changing drastically uh, e-money legislation, banking legislation there, basically liberalizing that market. Unbelievable. I mean, you, you don't need any more than India. That market is large enough. 200 million mobile millennials, I mean, large enough to start very meaningful financial services businesses. Yeah. Mm. So regulation is really important. It does limit um, your ability to, to, to launch a global service. Mm. It really does. And that includes companies like PayPal. I mean, PayPal, it took them many, many years and top dollars to crack the German market. Mm. Um, so, so we have those barriers. And, and if you do fintech investing, that's your going in assumption. Yeah. I mean, the, the, there's always good and bad things about it. It's hard to get in. But once you're in, it's a great business. There's mm. a barrier to it. Mm. So. Fair enough. Fair enough. So all right, if you go back to where we left off, you were... I think still doing a lot of this consulting in Eastern Europe, based in Austria, 2005 or thereabouts. What happened after that? So then I was advising a company called First Data. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, that's still, I'm sure many people know, it's one of the largest payment processors in the world, coming out of the US, former Fortune 500 company, one of the largest buyouts, KKR bought them in 2007. And um, so I was advising them and they were sort of buying companies left and right in Europe at the time and basically David Yates who now runs Vocalink here in London he basically told me you know I'd rather have you in the management team and why don't you come over and basically help me sort of create a pan-european player because again um, they were buying basically uh, domestic businesses all over Europe that were again regulated in each of these in, uh, in these markets and my job was to um, uh, create a, a pan-European service both from an account ma management uh, point of view so we were serving very large retailers and banks across Europe mm. Unicredit, um, uh, Rewe in Germany etc mm. uh, and at the same time really uh, create a pan-European infrastructure and tech uh, which was not easy because they were basically every legal entity mm. was based on their own tech mm. and you so, had to do all of that I had to do all that. Yeah, I mean, I had a great team. I was yeah. able to hire a fantastic team into this. And so I did that for a number of years, really liked it. And in um, 2008, um, left the company, end of 2008. Um, 
as a as a good lever. Mm. I mean, without going into too many details, but uh, KKR was able to float first data finally mm. last year. But uh, I guess um, uh, unfortunately they did miss mobile and internet mm. in a big way, mm. and so I went off to crack that mm. that piece. Mm. But you know what is interesting? Maybe we come back to that. I mean, banks and financial services inherently are digital. They've always been, haven't mm. they? Right? It's a digital service, and so it's particularly interesting to see how incumbents can still miss the new digital agenda, isn't it? Because mm. it's a digital service, so mm. yeah, it's inherently capable of, of being versatile into yes. any new thing that comes in. But it's more of maybe a political thing that keeps it from and and, and risk aversion that keeps it from innovating. Yeah. So what happened after the first data then? And then for the, you know, since 2008, I had my own company basically uh, advising banks, payment processors, um, and also large buyout funds mm-hmm. on anything financial services. And at the same time, I started to do some angel investing in fintech myself, mm-hmm. put the money where my mouth is. And so I uh, started to, for instance, support a company called Paylution, mm-hmm. which was mainly a Klarna copycat in, in Central and Central, uh, Eastern Europe which we later on sold to Skrill. Uh, uh, we started uh, with a very talented team out of uh, you know German Turks, basically going back to Istanbul, uh, a payment gateway, kind of you know stripe of Turkey, mm. um, uh, helped them build it up. And so I had a lot of fun because I had time and I could uh, basically um, give all my experience and expertise in that sector to talented founders like Barbaros uh, and help them create great companies so mm-hmm. fast forward today um, they're uh, the last week they transacted their first um, transaction in Iran so they're already a market leader in Turkey cool so uh, that's you know we're pushing the limits there yeah, so it's excellent and so how many angel investors have I mean this is under the, the, the flag of speed invest not yet so I did this uh, on my own flag and uh, I have um, in many instances, um, speed investing simply because we're co-located in Vienna, mm. decided to co-invest, and uh, so we got to know each other. It's a very trusted relationship, and so when Oliver Holley from Speed Invest raised his second fund last year, which is now a hundred million dollar fund, um, you know, we it was apparent that it was a good time for me to join for the good mm. and help him do fintech across Europe, which we've been very actively doing, including Curve. Yeah, uh, which just launched last week here in London, which is very exciting. Yeah, maybe this is a good chance to, to plug Curve, but I'll let you do it. What, why is why did you think Curve is awesome to invest in? Other than the fact that Shahar, which is if he's listening to this, uh, is an amazing entrepreneur in his own right. Yes, I mean, again, I mean, uh, it's uh, you know, it wasn't very difficult to to be persuaded that Shahar is a fantastic founder, um, that he has understood. Uh, there is a bridging technology necessary in the current situation. There is uh, shortcomings with uh, offerings from Apple Pay, uh, for instance, which is a great service. Mm. But there will s- simply be many, many more years of adoption technologically and culturally from the users before that can really take off. And so he, um, he created a, a solution I truly believe in, which in a very easy way lets you aggregate all your cards. And, um, you know, I, I obviously started testing it myself mm. over the last few weeks. And I can say that it's the only card left that I'm using. Mm. Um, so really solve that fat wallet problem 
but there's so much more it can do and you know let's not uh, already give everything out of the bag yeah, but, uh, but no it's, it's good I mean maybe this is a good time also to talk about what you guys look for now that you know you, you, you've been doing this um, not only from the investing point of view from the just helping and consulting financial services and if we sort of expand that, that experience to what you think still needs to happen from an innovation perspective in financial services and where that maps to speed invests investment focus maybe you can just walk us through um, what that looks like okay so I mean again I think it's important to remind ourselves why it uh, why there I mean we're in the midst of really a, a paradigm shift uh, in financial services in Europe and really worldwide which is not going to happen over one or two years this is we're in the midst of a development that is probably 10 to 20 years ongoing because a lot of these companies be it curve or also number 26 which have an active role in berlin i mean these companies we're going to build great companies out of these and it's going to take many years um, so we're at the tip of the iceberg and why is this important basically all these fintechs have an ability to acquire customers um, at a fraction of the cost that banks have. They will be able to create an environment that allows cross-selling and cross-product through mobile phone, which is unheard of. So just to give an example, in banking, traditional banking, depending on the market, of course, cross-sell ratios above current accounts, so how many other products in current account is a bank able to sell on top, is anywhere between one and a half and two and a half. You will see these fintechs through that one-click mobile frictionless experience uh, be able to drive that number up to five, six, and seven times. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, unit cost. Uh, the tech, um, you know, core banking from the cloud, as an example. The tech will enable uh, fintechs to serve customers again at a fraction of the cost of a traditional bank. Um, so you take all of that together and and of course it, it creates very, very interesting, very large mm. businesses going down the road. Mm. And if you look at if you look at the, um, the financial services industry as a as a series of ambiguated blocks. So without going too much into specific companies, but like you have everything from holding money to investing money, mm -hmm. to how payments get done, um, and how do you monitor your cash use, how do you pay others, there's a, f a few of these, right, we can use these right. as general buckets, and you see startups that are, you know, kind of dotting the ecosystem there, which one of those buckets do you think is under-innovated, uh, which, which bucket do you think is, you know what, this has been a really hard one to crack, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we're investors in a company called Moniz, which is a, is a current account for... Norris Koppel. Yeah, and, yeah, Norris Koppel is the, the founder. You know, you look at, at Moniz and, you know, it's an area that is hard to crack mm -hmm. because it's, a, it's one that actually is the major touch point for somebody's money. Um, and it's great, you know, what he's trying to do. And then you have other ones, like, for example, um, uh, payment platforms, which really are more about improving what existed with something a lot better, but there's already an expectation that that needs to be there, and mm -hmm. it's it's an easier switching cost perhaps. And so I'm just curious in your in your view, which buckets have are left? So which ones are the ones that, geez, you know, nobody's really managed to do anything significant here. 
Okay, so I mean, I mean, the, I think the honest answer is um, probably for me, insurance is part of financial services. Let's okay. not forget about that. I think insurance is uh, a sector that is ripe for disruption. There are a number of startups, but there's still significantly fewer than uh, anything that is related to banking, payment, or asset management, wealth management. Mm -hmm. So I think you will see much more activity there. You will see actually um, startups that will go straight into underwriting risk. So in many ways, um, there isn't a fundamental difference between a credit tech whose core know-how really is using big data to make better scoring decisions in markets where there is no credit bureau infrastructure to talk of and uh, using big data to underwrite uh, risk that can be covered by an insurance. Mm. There's a lot of similarity between those and I think you will see a lot of activity, I mean you already see a lot of activity in this space basically disrupting insurance underwriting. Mm. It will be extremely interesting to see where this is going and let's not forget um, all the Moniz's and the number 26 and the curves at the end um, we are only at the very very beginning they will start with the help of other startups m maybe mm -hmm. or uh, you know hiring their own data scientists you will see both models mm -hmm. to really start making sense of your transaction data so for sure we're not very far away of services where you um, get driven by smart algorithms based on your transaction history and only if you want it advice that anticipates your needs when it comes to certain opportunities in the stock market certain investment opportunities maybe in property mm -hmm. um, and uh, maybe giving you insights into that you might be short on your a bank account and you need a, a, an overdraft for a few days uh, to bridge it uh, that kind of intelligence mm. uh, you will see happening and 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 now we're talking real innovation because that's certainly nothing that we have ever seen from traditional banking so i think we're at the very beginning of uh really smart banking and smart mm. insurance so there's there's so much more to come yeah, you, you I feel we're just in the beginning, really. Yeah, we definitely are. And I think partially because all the data sets are quite siloed still, right? So you don't really have the different kinds of in, uh, transactions that you have in your life speaking to each other. So even though you might behave like a high credit worthy person with regards to many areas of responsibility in your life, you don't necessarily have that represented in the credit giving entities. So I think an area that's of interest to me, to some extent, that you mentioned it earlier is, is how to requalify the population on both uh, individual credit decisions, mm -hmm. large credit decisions, or point credit decisions, and or creating a new financing model for that that enables them to, so to democratize consumption, both of, of investment goods or of assets or of, of temporary sort of consumer electronic stuff. And we have a company called Say Bye Bye that, that kind of attempts to do that, mm -hmm. at least from the consumer electronics point mm -hmm. of view. So, so totally agree. And so with regards to founders wanting to talk to you uh, and, and via Speed Invest, what, what kind of stage are you guys interested in? We love early stage. That's our DNA. That's um, and we want to continue to do that, even though our fund size is much more significant now. We continue to we love coming in early. Um, also here in the UK, um, I've noticed um, 
that uh, there are fewer and fewer funds that really sort of come into this space. We love it and mm. we want to continue to do it. We now have the ability to double down uh, when it comes to scaling those businesses up with more funds. Mm. But we're going to continue to do that. So because you, yeah. you look at companies as, as early as you do, surely you see a lot of people coming in to pitch you with certain assumptions about what is possible, what is not possible in terms of launching a fintech startup. Mm -hmm. What are the top two or three different things that you regularly see founders underestimate mm -hmm. in terms of launching their fintech startup? Yeah, um, for sure um, there is, uh, you know, fundamentally um, it takes more time to set up a fintech startup than I say and uh, other digital startups simply because of the regulation. So you just simply cannot issue a visa card without uh, having a partner that is principal member, which means that you are confronted with partners that are not as fast as you are, and you have to go through a certain uh, approval process. So that, that makes for a longer runway, and it basically means um, also getting expertise in to maybe accelerate this process. Um, I mean, that's where we come in. I think we can help uh, founders, um, you know, shorten the time to uh, create a product that will be successful in the market. Um, and it, but it also means we have a lot of conversation with founders that come with unrealistic timetables. Yeah. And we simply stretch them and say, believe me, it's going to take longer than you think. So uh, let's from the beginning do the right thing and, and set up a sort of a budget that will allow you to create the runway you need and so mm -hmm. but you know founders uh, the good ones they listen and, mm -hmm. and so we we adopt um, their plans mm -hmm. accordingly so in some cases um, you've amended upwards the amount of money that they're raising and sometimes perhaps even pricing yourself out of the round perhaps hey I mean at the end uh, you got to start with um, what makes sense mm -hmm. and then you have to work your way back uh, into um, into what is fair for the founder and what is fair for the investor. But I think they, I mean, all of our um, investments, the founders have been extremely appreciative of us just being realistic mm -hmm. and just avoiding uh, any unrealistic planning. Yeah. And um, without picking, obviously, without trying to sort of create some sort of hierarchy and, and favoritism here, but what, what geographies would you say would be the, the low-hanging fruit for a fintech startup to, to, to try to launch it? <laughs> That's a tough one because uh, clearly we see certain markets, the large European markets, UK being the most prominent for sure, but also Germany out of Berlin and also France, not to be underestimated. Uh, but you have very similar concepts popping up in these three markets. And what is interesting is and there's, there's a lot less in every other market. I mean, obviously, the Scandinavian market is very, very innovative. Mm -hmm. And the Scandinavians, they try to get to the UK and the US market very fast, which is smart because those markets have a critical mass, obviously, of educated users and mobile penetration uh, and innovative people. So it's mm -hmm. great laboratories to go to. Um, but what is interesting is there's not that many examples yet mm -hmm. in fintech where you have either a UK, French or German-based startup, irrespective of what are we talking about now, wealth management or banking or payment, that has, has been successfully dominating two out of these three markets. Mm 
Mm. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, again, it shows how um, compartmentalized these markets are. Mm. We're talking different languages, different, uh, still different regulatory environments, even though the commission is tearing that down. Even different venture scenes. Mm. Um, so I'll be very, very curious to see this the next frontier, mm. pan-European winners mm. and what it takes to get them. We're agnostic. We back um, fintechs in London, in Berlin, in Eastern Europe. But of course, we always try to then quickly um, make them pan-European players and dominate them, that market. Mm. And, you know, when you, when you look at um, the, the whole sector from an investment point of view, I mean, you're obviously um, traveling quite a bit and you're looking at opportunities, as you said, all over the place. But from a stage perspective, um, is, there, is there some element where, where it's really critical at this stage to raise, you know, from what you saw before, just enough of a war chest to be able to wait out that timing, as we were talking about early. Is this the kind of business where, like, really every previous notion of raising a typical smaller early stage round is actually off the question for a really successful startup, knowing that these barriers need to still fall? And so does that mean that, are we too early still for, like, the, the key pan-European success story? Or is the timing just right? Um, I mean, it's. I think at this point, it's smart to err on the, on the on the side of you know increasing your war chest as big as possible. Uh, again, um, it is not trivial to uh, expand even within Europe into other markets. Um, and let's not forget. I mean. Um, our founders very much come from also their gr they grow up in certain of these markets and we are trying to find those founders who have the capability of really serving different markets and 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 frankly there are those founders who have that capability and those that they don't that are actually quite happy to be the market leader in Germany mm. I mean for us that's not so interesting mm. we really prefer those that have the ambition to create pan-european uh, plays and if if you you know right now there is this unbelievable window of opportunity to take that market. It is a land grab mm -hmm. when it comes to, for instance, smartphone-based banking. Mm -hmm. It's a land grab, and at the moment is now. So uh, yeah, that gets me excited for mm -hmm. sure. But but again, coming back to to funding, yes, um, this will cost money, and it will probably cost more than we think. So we better be prepared for that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Talking about taking a step back and talking about the pipes, the pipes that enable fintech. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the pipes that enable fintech aren't entirely that separated from existing incumbents, mm -hmm. which means that as a startup, you're kind of in this weird situation. You're trying to disrupt the very people that you still rely for a lot of the things that connect the yeah. entire fintech industry together. Sure. You know, and this is far more than any other industries where you can literally circumvent it by creating your own. You know, think mm -hmm. about like WhatsApp effectively circumventing the SMS network of telecoms. Mm -hmm. It just created its own. What, what what's happening there? Like, mm -hmm. what have you seen happen? What are the horror stories? If you have any, and do you think that there's going to be a wake up moment where a lot of the incumbent infrastructure providers are just going to say, you know what, guys, forget it. You know, like we're going to create some issues here, and as a consequence, we'll have opportunity for us to launch our own products. That's a really interesting one because you're, you're, you're absolutely right in saying it's a strange moment because the fintechs are disrupting the incumbents are still relying on their infrastructure. That is very true. Um, um, and it's, 
I mean, I, I think, um, I think um, it's gonna, it's gonna still take a while to disrupt to disrupt that network. And let's not forget, the networks themselves have completely changed their mindset. And that includes a couple of banks. Many of the audiences know that Visa and Mastercard and Amex themselves, they have invested and are investing a lot of money into innovation. So I think they're very aware of the disruption potential. And I think they would rather create, you know, be part of that disruption rather than be disrupt disrupted. And this is also true for other banks. I mean, if you look at BBVA and Santander and, um, and a couple of others here in the UK, um, they are hedging their bets. They, they have their accelerators. Um, they have um, their own VCs. Um, and they are starting to also buy startups or invest into startups, as we've seen um, with Atom, for instance. And so I think there is real fear of disruption. Um, and some banks and infrastructure providers, if they're smart, will be part of that. Um, but, you know, who knows how it will pan out? It's, mm. it's a very interesting moment. And of course, the regulator will have a say in this as well. But if you look, in many ways, the mindset is really shifting. So uh, in a place like Germany, which hasn't been very famous for uh, embracing uh, fintechs, um, the BDB, the German Banking Association, has actively called upon fintechs to become members. Mm. They have a special membership now in, in, the, in the club of the banks. Mm. So and you can see you know, th those things happening that really mean something. Mm -hmm. So. Um, Let's see how it works out. Yeah. Let's see how it works out. Well, with that, thanks for joining us, Stefan. It was great hearing your thoughts on, on fintech. And if founders are out there that want to, to, to get in touch with him, what's the best way to, to get in touch with you? Your Twitter handle? Um, probably on, on LinkedIn, I guess. LinkedIn. I'm still, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I use Twitter, but I'm a more avid LinkedIn user, yeah. All right. So get in touch with him via LinkedIn and... Or just send Carlos an email. That's oh, also okay. And then I'll forward it on to you. Everything. Everything. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, guys. Bye. Thanks.